Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day and for the opportunity to gather together and continue to uh, look at the catechism uh, that our Baptist uh, ancestors put together, and we're thankful for it as a tool. Lord, we pray that it would point us to your truth and to your scriptures, and that, Lord, we would find uh, not only answers to questions, but, Lord, uh, glimpses of, of who you are and reminders of how much you love us. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the providence that we have been discussing lately and how you govern and protect and preserve us. And Lord, we, we thank you for uh, the love and, and uh, grace that have continued to keep you faithful to your covenants, even when we uh, are continually breaking them. And uh, we thank you again, Lord, for uh, being here with us today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, when you're done with that, hon, could you shut those doors? It's awful loud out there. Thanks. All right, we're going to start with question 12. Oh, I didn't bring in a whiteboard. Oh, well. Um, we'll start with question 12. And last week I had indicated we were going to do like a deep dive into uh, covenant theology, kind of. And then I looked at the question and I said, no, we're not. Uh, it only talks about one of the covenants. Uh, so we may do a real brief overview. Uh, I had this memory of the last time we went through the catechism of, of having a long discussion. So that must be coming up uh, still, uh, discussion of, of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. But we're only going to talk about one of those today uh, in detail. Uh, so if you've got your book, uh, whether you're on the side of the room for humans or the side just for Steve, who has been banished for some reason. Um, okay, let's, let's open up and read uh, the question together. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So, as we discuss this initial covenant, which we're going to call either the covenant of life or the covenant of works, you do have to sort of understand the grid with which these uh, early Baptists were viewing the Bible. Uh, there's something called covenant theology, which is part of the Reformed stream of Christianity, and it kind of determines the way that we approach the Bible. Uh, and then there are different subversions of that. There are lots of different uh, ways you can parse this stuff out. People debate it all the time, uh, and so we're not going to get into the weeds with it. Uh, remember the scriptures themselves, for example, in Galatians 4.24, uh, frame things in the, the, the uh, kind of categories of two different covenants. Uh, they're pictured as two women, as two mountains uh, in the epistles. Certain Calvinist covenant theologians want to talk about a third covenant as well, which is the covenant of redemption, covenant made not between God and man, but within the Trinity from eternity past, agreeing to redeem mankind. Um, which it's not laid out specifically in Scripture, but it really is kind of logically necessary when we remember that Scripture says we were chosen from before the foundation of the earth, that if from eternity past God intended to 
uh, save us. And if there is Christ submitting himself to the will of the Father and coming to bear our sins, there must have been some kind of covenant. And of course, the, the purpose for that, I think, is to bookend the covenant uh, situation with, with the idea of grace. Uh, not have it go works, then grace, then boom, done. But to have it kind of be a sandwich, uh, showing us our need for grace with this uh, covenant of life in, in the garden. We talked about what a covenant is last time, uh, and I think we want to just quickly re reiterate, because some of you weren't here, uh, a covenant is an agreement which in the world uh, of the Bible would have usually been between a strong king or a kingdom called the suzerain and a weaker kingdom called the vassal, uh, and it would be a formal agreement in which there were terms laid out. This is what you will do as the weaker uh, nation, probably pay us tribute. You'll, you'll come to our aid in little ways if needed. You'll, you'll help us out uh, with our bottom line a little bit. And then what the stronger, the suzerain would do, which is we will protect you if you're attacked. We'll put out the word that you're under our protection, this sort of thing. And then there's the blessings and the curses. The blessings are, this is all the benefits of you keeping up your end of the bargain. The curses are, if you mess with us, if you try and switch sides, if you, if you break these terms in any way, here are the curses. We're going to probably come in and stomp you out of existence. So that's how people in the ancient Near East thought of covenant. And then there are a number of situations in which religious documents contain covenants between the god, which obviously in this case is the stronger party, the suzerain, and the nation, uh, the, the people that worship that god, which is the, the vassal. And there are the same elements at play. The two parties are identified. You have the blessings and the curses. You have, uh, this is my end of things. This is your end of things. And it's a very serious thing. It would have been thought of as a life and death thing. Because if you make a covenant, uh, it can save your life. I mean, we're, we're usually dealing with a small city-state or something saying, hey, let's hook up with the, the Hittites, you know. We're, we're sitting ducks out here. And if you break the covenant, it can cost your life. And so it's very deadly serious stuff. Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about the Abrahamic covenant in which uh, animals were cut in two and uh, put in such a way that there was kind of a path between them. And I mentioned that normally what would happen would be to cut the covenant. That's why they call it cutting a covenant, because there's bloodshed involved to show the seriousness. Um, to cut a covenant, uh, you would have the weaker person walk through, kind of indicating, and they kind of look both ways, like, okay, this is me if I break the covenant. So the representative of the vassal would go through, and that would show that they were very serious. It makes me think of like, you know, you hear about like Masonic rituals and stuff where they like say, oh, we're going to cut your throat or spill your bowels or something. You know, you read those Jack Chick comics. Well, this was actually a very standard practice. So if, if we then apply all this to, for example, the Abrahamic covenant, you see that it's God, the stronger, the suzerain, going between the two sides of the the. Uh, bifurcated animal carcasses. Uh, it's God who's going to make these things hold together. The stronger party, uh, not the weaker. In fact, 
the weaker party. The whole story of the Old Testament is them walking away from covenant, breaking covenant, doing everything they can uh, to kind of bring the, the wrath down upon them. And God continually forgives. Uh, and of course, sometimes some of these covenant curses do come upon them, but he never just trashes the covenant. Uh, it's, it's all uh, pointing forward to Christ, of course. Roger, what's up? Would the um, stone tablets be part of the covenant too? Yeah, so Would there be stone you're, you're now talking about the Mosaic covenant, yeah. which is a different covenant. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, this is not 100%, but it really is uh, kind of clever and, and an interesting little factoid to, to file away in your head that normally there would be two copies made of the terms of every covenant and one of them would be placed into the temple of the gods of the vassal, the weaker uh, kingdom, uh, kind of tying it to their worship of their god. Now they also are keeping this covenant that they made, and their god is bearing witness to that. And then the other copy would be placed uh, in the kind of royal archives with the king of the stronger, uh, just with all the other covenants they've made with everybody. Uh, And both sides kept a copy of these things. So when you read about two stone tablets, you're probably not reading about Roman numeral one through five over here and oops, I'm out of room, Roman numeral six through 10 over here. You're probably dealing with two copies of the same document. And where are they placed? Well, one is placed with the king, which is Yahweh. He's their their king, right? It's a theophany uh, or theocracy rather. So it's placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The other one is placed with the God of the weaker nation, which again is Yahweh. So both copies are placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Again, showing this is a very kind of unilateral thing, even though the Mosaic Covenant involves laws that have to be kept and all the whole thing with Mount uh, Ebal and Mount Gerizim with the blessings and the curses being repeated and all these things that will happen. Uh, it's still, it, it, we are getting in the weeds now, but uh, what happens is, Uh, In the Mosaic Covenant, it kind of reiterates this covenant of life or covenant of works and then moves pointing more and more toward grace. Uh, And so there's certainly grace involved. That's why the whole thing involves animal sacrifice and all of this stuff that that shows, uh, points forward to the cross, shows that God is, is gracious. So... We want to think in terms maybe of three covenants, um, if we count the covenant of redemption, maybe the, between God and man, two covenants, the covenant of works or the covenant of life and the covenant of grace. I, I mentioned two names for it, not to be confusing, but because it's usually called the covenant of works, but the answer here calls it the covenant of life. When God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good of evil upon the pain of death. Uh, there are then different ways to break up these two covenants. What, what we find here is what's called now called 1689 federalism. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, and it can suck you in because it's starts to shine light on parts of the gospel and parts of the scriptures that you haven't understood before. Uh, Check out 1689federalism.com. Very specific website, but very, very good. Lots of charts, lots of cool stuff. And uh, it shows us how we historically as Baptists have understood this initial covenant, which is fairly quickly broken, being of works. You do this, you live forever. You don't, you die forever. Well, there it is, right? 
Uh, and after that, Genesis 3.15, they've broken it. Curses are coming down. But even in the midst of the curses for that covenant of works, he starts talking covenant of grace. I'm not just going to trash you people. And even then, the Mosaic covenant is under the category although we as Baptists would say not of the same material, but under the category of a different representation of, manifestation of, a covenant of grace. It's all about pointing us now toward what will be the new covenant, and that will come with Christ. Does that make sense? Anyone have questions? Anyone totally lost? If we, we can kind of work it through again. I was writing notes, so you said all the other ones are covenants of grace. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, and, and there's always debate about the Mosaic covenant, because obviously there are elements there temporal and spatial elements saying you do these things and you stay in this land you don't and you're out of here even then of course grace is shown because they go in exile and then they come back but uh, insofar as it is related to their salvation it's always covenant of grace now adam it was you have good relationship with me as long as you keep perfect obedience uh, not the case under the mosaic covenant right there was grace. They were saved by grace. Make, read the book of Hebrews. Read, read the whole New Testament. It's clear. Uh, Old Testament saints, even under the Old Covenant, are saved by grace. And the law is there as the schoolmaster pointing them toward their need for grace. It's all serving grace. But this question's about the downer one, the one we broke right away, and the one that brought death, disease, and chaos into the world. So, fun times. So, it's the covenant of works or the covenant of life. There is a condition perfect obedience, and there's a promise. You keep on living in paradise forever, and uh, everybody's happy. And that, that's not just perfect obedience outwardly, right? To perfectly keep this law, their hearts must have the right motivation, inward perfect obedience. Um, this is the kind of stuff that, I mean, we can't even fathom what it would look like to keep this covenant for 10 seconds, to not have even an impulse that we entertain of turning against God. But they do it for a time. How? Because when Adam and Eve are created, they're not born into bondage to sin like we were. Their wills were free to be perfectly aligned with God's before the fall. And therefore, they were able, until Temptation came from an outside source and they gave in to perfectly reflect the image of God in everything they did and thought and said and even wanted. Yeah, Roger. So you're saying that before the fall, they were doing exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. They weren't lusting. They weren't angry. They were... I didn't say that, but you could say that, and I think it would be fair. Sure. Yeah, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, what does it look like to live according to the law cranked up to 11? Uh, and Adam and Eve aren't living according to an external law cranked up to 11. They're following the law written on their hearts, uh, which hasn't yet been fractured by the fall, and they are in, in perfect obedience. Um, <coughs> Galatians 3.12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And that is, this is all central to the story of how we become uh, disciples of Jesus, how we got to the point we're at. And I think it's why it makes sense to have taken some time to look at creation and say, was there an actual Adam? And if not, what does that do to the narrative, to the story? 
um, it it's messes up the covenants right off the bat, doesn't it? Uh, and the covenants are central. In fact, Alexander White, this 19th century uh, Scottish divine, one of my favorite guys to read on, on these topics, said there is no religion without the idea of a covenant with a personal God. And so, you know, I know people who are spiritual, not religious, and that's a growing category. And that means that they, you know, they think about Zen and do yoga and meditate and say om and say namaste to each other, even though they don't even know what it means. By the way, it means I bow to you. Um, uh, and they don't enter in in any way to a personal relationship with a personal God in a covenant. That's not true religion then. You can't have actual, in fact, look at um, the great religions of the world. What they have in common is a personal God with a personal interest in humanity and a covenant. And I think that that's not necessarily even, oh, they're ripping off the Judeo-Christian tradition at every turn, but rather just we all know that there is a chasm fixed between us and our Creator and that we need to somehow come together if there is going to be peace between us. And God's got to do it. God's got to be the one who, you know, so you read the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna, you know, makes the journey across that space to come and, and offer kind of salvific advice. Uh, and all of this, I mean, you've even tried to make covenants, as have I, with God, you know, on the fly, freestyle, right? Someone tell me the dumbest covenant you've tried to make with God. And you know what I mean. You're wheeling and dealing. Lord, if I, if I don't fail this test, I will go to church every week for the next six years. Lord, if only my cholesterol is under 200 this time, I'm not going to swear anymore. And Aaron? I think that um, probably we've done a number of them, and they were so just on the fly that we don't even remember what they were, which shows how important they were. The problem with that is, of course, that it puts you in the suzerain role. <laughs> you're setting terms on this covenant and God's going, yeah, no, you're not in any, it's like, it's like in the movies or something, you are in no position to negotiate. Uh, I know, but we try anyway. Um, the, the covenant we need has already been made. Did so, pardon? Did Samuel, didn't Hannah kind of wheel and deal with God when she had Samuel? She give Samuel to you I have a child. I mean, that's an established practice. Um, I don't think she was trying to set the terms. She was saying, I'll show my gratitude by uh, dedicating him to God's service. And then she did. She saw it through. That's, I, I don't think there's anything sinful in that. Covenants that we make with them. She actually kept it for Right, right. She kept it for more than 10 She wasn't like, here's my son. And then got to the driveway and was like, ah, forget it. I already have my son. So what do I need God anymore for? But what was it? It was, it was, and I, I, I mentioned this before, and it shows that I uh, watched how, uh, how I Met Your Mother well enough to know all the characters. But uh, the, my, my favorite subplot was when, um, I don't remember what he wanted, but he wanted God to do something for him, and he said uh, that he was going to give away all of his suits, which are his prized possession, his suits. And so he went to a church and brought all of his suits. He said, I'm going to donate these. And as soon as they were in the hands of the preacher, they had a cl clothing closet, kind of like we do. Um, the thing that he wanted happened. And he was like, oh, never mind. I don't need to donate the suits anymore. He took them back. Uh, that's how we covenant, not how God covenants. 
Uh, open up to Genesis 2.17. Let's compare that uh, with, with a little New Testament action. Genesis 2.17. Uh, I'll read it if you if you don't want to, and you can just write the the thing down, Aaron. It's two, one seven. Okay. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die." That that is not called a covenant, a, a berit in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, but it obviously is one. It's, it is not yet mired in all of the kind of cultural stuff that, that comes up around the covenants, the, the uh, identification of the parties at the beginning, followed by the... But it's got blessings, it's cursings. We, we know the two, uh, um, the two parties because they're identified here. It's God and the man. And... It's very succinct. Uh, and then Romans 5, 12 to 14. Who wants to read that? We read this two weeks ago. And when discussing this stuff, it, it, it's kind of a key passage. 5, 12 to 14. Uh, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law of sin was in the world. The sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So you have in that covenant of works more parties than it kind of lets on. Yes, Roger, they're the only two people, so who else would it be between unless it's like an elephant and a fawn or something. But Adam being our federal head, we too were part of that covenant. Uh, Paul says even those who in the meantime hadn't sinned after the likeness of of Adam's transgression uh, also essentially bore the consequences. Death reigned and uh, Adam is the, the figure of him that was to come. So we have the first Adam, the second Adam. This is stuff we already talked about and, and I know that you know. Uh, and you know Romans 10.5, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does these things shall live by them. There is this emphasis on you do it, you live. You see that in uh, the Ten Commandments, even built into one of them is a promise. Uh, and as they're sussed out throughout the rest of the books of the law, there's also the opposite of promises. There's curses, um, bad promises uh, attached to some of them as well. Uh, so the, this first, though, this first covenant, it wasn't uh, law serving the purpose of grace. It was law there in order to continue life. Without it, Breaking the law means death. Uh, and not just physical death, of course, but spiritual death. Separation from God. Uh, it means a reorienting of our, uh, not only our loyalties, but our familial connections. Right? Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're not like your father God. No, he says, you're just like your father Satan. And then throughout the New Testament, there's a picture of becoming uh, saved, justified, being adoption, being readopted by the Father who created us. 
because we chose a different father in Adam. That's, that's the picture here uh, of this first covenant. Uh, someone read for me Luke 10, 25 through 28. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is saying, if you want to jump back into a covenant of works, if you want to turn the Mosaic covenant into a covenant of life, perfect obedience means uh, eternal life, you're free to try. But what does it look like? Well, it looks like this. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor's not just the guy that lives next to you, but the jerk, you know, the 17-year-old and his dad's Dodge Viper cutting you off and... Uh, you know, it's impossible, but feel free to try. Uh, and like Roger mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount paints this picture as well. It's, it's impossible. If you really want to keep these, these things, you have to keep them perfectly, and you have to keep them internally and externally. And so Jesus is continually showing people that by the law, they won't find salvation. In fact, the law's purpose is to point them to that fact and then beyond it to the cross where someone else goes through, you know, just like God was the one who went through the two uh, kind of lines of, of bifurcated animal bodies, Christ will be the one who both keeps the requirements of the law on our behalf, his active obedience, we call this, and suffers the curses for our having broken them, his passive obedience, and that way, we can actually have life. And it's the only way that we can have life. Roger. I know at this point when God gave that law, Eve wasn't made yet. So did he, I know we don't see in scripture, but did, she, did God repeat the law after he, he made Eve? Or Maybe Adam just was like, oh, this is important. Let me tell you. There was probably an orientation. <laughs> this is where the trees are. Not that one. I haven't named these yet. Yeah, Let's do this. Do. Yeah, she knows. So yeah, I don't. I don't know if, if God repeats it or not. I don't. I don't even know um, how literalistically to take this story, and how uh, all I know is the the whole thing. I mean, it does revolve around the episode of a tree. I I get very uncomfortable the notion of the tree being symbolic of something else, of the eating of the fruit being. Um, you know, there there was a stream of doctrine recently we had to interact with because. Um, there were people worshiping here at the time, not anymore, that were teaching, no, 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 what really happened in the garden was this, this sexual encounter between the serpent and the woman. And it, it, you start getting way, way, you know, I almost said off the reservation, but I think that's racist. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Out in... Sure, okay. Out, in, out into the, in the weeds, out in left field, just you, you, you get yourself really screwed up really quick when you try and... Augustine this thing, right? And, and make everything a symbol for something else. Uh, it, it's a tree. And, it's, you know, to paraphrase Freud, sometimes a tree is just a tree. So we see in the episode of the tree what is often pointed out. It's like the first thing that happens with humans, or one of the first, 
And it's often pointed out that this is the most unfair deal anyone ever got, right? How, how could you do, why would you create people and say, here's a beautiful garden for you, but not that tree? Why not just not create that tree? If you don't want them to eat from that tree, make it inaccessible. Why aren't you, isn't this entrapment, right? Is, is this entrapment or what? Um, and of course the answer is no, it's, it's not entrapment. Uh, it, it's a repeated motif in the scriptures from even before this, by the way, that Yahweh is the great teacher and everything he's doing, just like everything Jesus does in his ministry, teaches us about himself and therefore the character of God, him being the exact representation for us. This is all about teaching who he is. It's, a, it's an object lesson. Like with the kids at children's time, here's an object lesson. And who has the power at this point to degrade creation? We have the creator. We have all of his creation that he made over the course of six days, the pinnacle of which is, is man, male and female made in his image. At this point, God could degrade his creation, but he won't. Morally, he can't. Or his image bearers. That's the situation that we, we find. It's not unfair. It's, it's just logically necessary. He created them in his image. He gave them that responsibility. They could drop the ball. Why the tree? Why, why is that the case? God is not tempting them. We know that. James says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Right? James isn't lying. So God's not putting it there to tempt them. Is God putting it there to test them? It's the same word in the Greek where we're told that God does not, but, but clearly God is involved in the testing of Abraham with Isaac and, and all of this sort of thing. Uh, we, we need to also remember the tree itself is not evil. Uh, it's, it's just that God's command has told them not to do it. Therefore, it would be a rebellion to do it. So, let me point earlier to when the same sort of thing happens, that God creates man and there is a period of time where the man is alone, right? And then God says, I haven't found a suitable helper for you or mate for you anywhere. I've looked, I've, I've tried them all out. I was like, what about a gibbon? No, too furry. I don't know. Like, like, he, like there's this, this, subtext that he's really considering all the other possible, you know, would they make a good team? No, not really. And, and finally he says, I'm going to have to make something entirely new. So what does he do? He puts Adam to sleep. Puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, makes a woman, Adam awakes, and what's Adam's response? He's like, eh, you're all right. Flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He starts just gushing over, oh my goodness, I was alone. I mean, I had God, but she's not just like me. She's not, he's not bone of my bone, he's not flesh of my flesh. Now I have this woman who is, we're the same and we complement each other. Also, we're naked and I like what I see. Also, I can imagine spending forever and ever with her and we get to know each other better. And, and, and you know, we, I don't know if they have any concept of growing old together, but we can stay young together and... and <laughs> He's ecstatic. Now, why? I mean, did God really take time uh, trying out all the other creatures? 
What about a fern? No, not talkative enough. I mean, like, no. Why does God go through this then? Yeah, so, so Adam would see that he was alone and that God was the one who was providing. So it's a teaching moment is what it is, right? So God is the one providing this. And so in the same way, the tree is there to show that they do need knowledge of good and evil, right? God identifies this tree as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says, don't go there. Now, many people have read this and said, you see, religion is all about keeping people from knowledge. No, the scriptures are all about God giving us knowledge of good and evil. The point is that God himself should be the source for our knowledge of good and evil, not somewhere else. This is a lesson that I think the people in the time of the judges could have stood to learn, right? Oh, we'll all do what's right in our own eyes. That's the same sin as taking the fruit, not going to God for what is good and evil. Our culture today could stand to learn this lesson. Everybody's making up, just crazy and make them up, mad-libbing what's good and evil based on what I wish was good and evil. This is the same exact sin. God is teaching something here that we need to learn, and people who need to learn it are going, well, that's entrapment. That's the kind of petty God that you serve. But it was the way to teach and show that they needed to come to him as the teacher. Adam appreciates Eve because he's initially without her. He's lonely. He knows what it's like to not have her. And when he receives her from God, when God provides her, and he, he fully understands that this is where he goes to have his needs met, to God. He, if he would have wandered around and found like a wolf that was really nice, and then maybe yeah, I find my own. I mean, God created everything, but, but he wouldn't have had that teaching moment. Uh, and in the, in the case of the tree, the only thing that stands between Adam and Eve and the tree is God's command. There isn't, there's intentionally not a cherubim with a flaming sword yet. A cherubim is, is plural. I don't know why I said a cherubim. Um, and it serves as a lesson of experience uh, that God's command is at the center of the universe, that they're queens and kings of God's creation only at his will, at his pleasure and that they must submit to him. It's there to demonstrate that God can remove things from their dominion. And one thing that gets removed is uh, their innocence. It's, a, it's such a sad story. Like the, the introduction of shame, that they were naked, not a care in the world. And then even though it's just the two of them and they've seen each other, the shame kind of comes and, and there's this sense of we need to be covered up. And it's so just pregnant with theological meaning. We'll do it ourselves. And they start sewing together leaves. And God's like, you're so stupid. I'll do it. And then an animal is killed, blood is shed. And they're provided with this picture of being, their, their shame being covered by God. Um, this is all, I guess, a, a roundabout way of dealing with this answer. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created, that he entered into him with a covenant of life upon condition? The condition of the covenant is perfect obedience. The blessing is living forever in paradise. And the curse is pain of death. Uh, that he would not... <laughs> you had one job, Adam. And that's, that's the uh, question 12. That's a downer. 
Luckily, we have time to kind of pop the top on question 13. Oh, never mind. That's a downer, too. <laughs> question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Answer. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Uh, who would flip back to Genesis for me? And uh, read Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8, and then also verse 13. Genesis 3, 6 through 8, and also 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they, is that, yeah, let's see. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the reason that it's only loincloths for men and women, if you've ever seen pictures of Adam and Eve, is that Eve's hair was always perfectly in front of her boobs. So that didn't need to be addressed. Um, this is a picture for us of, of free will, which Alexander White called a perilous and in the event, a fatal gift. I think that's a very interesting framing of free will. A perilous and in this event, a fatal gift. Uh, Thomas Boston, a 17th century Scottish Presbyterian, uh, said this on the topic, Freedom of will is a power in the will, whereby it doth of its own accord, without force upon it, choose or refuse what is proposed to it by the understanding. I'll read it again in a minute. And man hath this freedom of will in whatever state he be. In the state of innocency, it extendeth to good or evil. In the state of corrupt nature, to evil only. In the state of grace partly to good and partly to evil, and in the state of glory, only to good. Did you follow that? So let me, let me uh, de-King James it. Freedom of the will, it's a power that you have that your will is free to refuse or to choose whatever the mind kind of presents it with. And humans have this freedom of will no matter what state they're in. If they're in a state of innocence, like Adam and Eve, they were free completely to good or to evil. In the state of corruption, meaning after the fall, people born into sin, they were free to evil only. You say, well, how are they free? Because you are bound by sin, your desire, as, as it so eloquently says in the book of Genesis, man's every desire is only evil all the time, right? So the desire is now shunted to the side, no longer perfectly in line with God's will. So we're no longer perfectly free to choose the good or the evil because we are choosing with broken, cursed uh, wills. In the state of grace, meaning where you are now, if you've put your faith in Jesus and been born again, uh, partly to good and partly to evil. 
uh, not totally free to good because you still have this sin nature you're contending with, but certainly not totally free to evil because the Holy Spirit is there reigning you in and convicting you of sin. And as you're sanctified, more and more to good and less and less to evil is, is the idea, although he doesn't flesh that out. And then in the state of glory, and this is good news that I rarely think about, <coughs> only to good, which means that in eternity, we'll be in a far better place than Adam and Eve were in in the garden. We will, we will be now not just justified, declared righteous, sanctified, slowly becoming more and more righteous, more prone to good and less to evil, but glorified, purged of anything of the old Adam that's left in us, even Adam purged of anything of the old Adam that's left in him, so that we are free again to choose the good and to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah. So you're saying when we're glorified, we won't lose our free will? Right, your free will will just be truly freed. Calvin again and again quotes Augustine, that man, by making a bad use of his free will, lost both himself and it. And so it's by misuse of free will that free will was fractured and broken and now leans precariously toward the sin side. Now, does that mean that everyone is always as wicked as they could be? No, there's common grace. But it means that every aspect of your heart, your life, your thinking, every aspect of this world is touched by that curse of sin and needs to be redeemed. Yes? I think that was R.C. Sproul talked about the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Hmm. And, and, you know, so that kind of, I think, does a good job of describing what, what you're talking about when we're not as evil as we could be. But, uh, obviously not without um, without God's Word and without the Holy Spirit unable to uh, choose choose salvation or choose anything good other than dead works that uh, have no merit. Right, and are filthy rags in God's sight because they're all stained by uh, pride and, and selfish ambition. But even the common grace comes into it with, you know, there are people who are 48 when they come to faith and they have no idea how evil they could have been, right? But they do know that they need salvation because they are totally depraved. But I mean, I was like five when I put my faith in Jesus and in God's providence, he saved me from like, it's not that there's no original sin in a little kid, if you've had one, you know that. It's that they lack the ability to carry out the wickedness that is uh, potential within them. Uh, and so what great grace to, to come to faith at such an early age that you weren't really ever able to flex uh, the, the muscles of total depravity and instead grow up with a will that is free uh, partly to good and partly to evil, moving in the direction of honoring God, knowing your ultimate destination will be glorification, uh, where in that state, your freedom extendeth only to good. <laughs> Anyone have any, before we go on, probably that's about where we could stop and we could pick up with um, the effects of the fall next time. But does anyone have 
Uh, any thoughts on, on this stuff? We haven't even really gotten into what we consider original sin, which is a, a doctrine I believe is required to be called a Christian, even though there are those who would try and reject it. The reason I asked about that free will thing is because of what John the Baptist, I heard what people say John the Baptist said, about I must become less and he must become more. How does that have to do with that? That that means you're going to be all the same in eternity. I think that's a free will, interpretation you of that. Yeah, the right, the right way to understand that is simply uh, that in, in that, that, that verse really, we, we probably misapply it a bit uh, because it's so catchy. It's simply saying that in John's public ministry, he had to fade to the background, and Jesus, in his beginning of his public ministry, had to come to the foreground because he was the point, because John was the forerunner. That doesn't say anything really about uh, an effect on our will. Um, really even talking about salvation or... No, and, and I, I know I'm guilty of having, and I don't even know if it's guilt because it's... It's still a true statement. But when we say, I must decrease and he, he must increase, uh, I mean, my old passions, lusts, desires, and, and uh, my old affections have to fall away and new affections have to come and supplant them and replace them. Uh, and those, that's the mind of Christ. Uh, but when we say we want the, the mind that was in Christ Jesus uh, to come into us, it doesn't mean we all have the same personality or we all have the same talents, or we all have the same interests. It just means we all have that same desire to glorify God. Let me read you one more great little quote. Many have puzzled themselves, says John Newton, about the origin of evil. I observe there is evil, and there is no way to escape it. And with this I begin and end. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we might begin with the a uh, clear picture of evil that we see all around us, the, the certain knowledge that there is evil and suffering and injustice. Lord, we thank you that we don't end with it, though, that instead we turn to you and find salvation at the cross. Lord, may we remember as we answer these questions and discuss these questions about the sin and original sin and the fall and the curse, that these are not the destination, uh, that even in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, like page 5 of our Bibles, you were already... Uh, speaking of and foretelling a covenant of grace, planning <coughs> from eternity past how you would save us, uh, that your, your grace and mercy are so much greater than our sin. And uh, Lord, uh, we, we just thank you that, that uh, Newton understood this truly and, and uh, that in his uh, understanding that he was a great sinner, he saw that you were a great savior and uh, we pray that we would see both of those things equally clearly as well. In your holy name we pray. Amen.